So if you need one more person to just be the person to nudge you over the ledge to do something this fall in a small group or a Bible study, I'll gladly be that person for you. Uh, it is not easy to carve out a regular hour a week or whatever it is in your schedule to sit down with other people and talk about the Bible, talk about how we're applying it to our lives, to loving our neighbors, to that. That, is, that takes time. You're busy people. In fact, they say today, people would rather give money to a cause than give time to it. It's like, here, I'll cut a check, but I'm not, I can't give my time. It's just too, it's almost a more valuable asset. I promise you, it's always better across the border of saying yes to Jesus than it is before you say yes to him. And he asks you, invites you, and commands you to live life in community, in relationship with other Christians, and to do that regularly. Part of the reason that Hortonville exists where it is, it's about 20 minutes from the Appleton location. The part of the reason that the Hortonville location is where it is is because we realize that in a world that is increasingly busy, and probably we'll get more busy. I don't think in 10 years we'll be less busy, you know? Uh, because of that, that 20-minute round trip it takes to get people from here to Appleton to do life together, to be in small groups together, to worship together, at that 20 minutes one way, 40 minutes round trip. If you have young kids like mine, it's an hour round trip because it takes like 20 minutes just to get them in the car. That's an hour we could give back to you here if we put a location here where you can worship together and, and read the Bible together and study the Bible together without having to burn that time in the car. So that's partly why we, this exists and why we want to do more is because it's just too important. The stakes are too high for us to not work hard and resource and, and make a way for places like this to exist in neighborhoods and in communities where people can gather and do that. So let me be the other one to knock you over the edge if you're on the fence about it. So I'll tell you the story to kind of set the tone for our sermon, the message today. And if you were at the Appleton location last week, you'll be hearing it a second time, but it's, it's better the second time. So that's what I, I think. My wife and I, in our, for our five-year anniversary, we went to France. And if you've ever been to France, you know, Paris is a, kind of can be a tough town, good people, but <clears throat> rough people. <clears throat> they... Uh, they're like, it's like New York City. It's like judging all of America by New Yorkers would be the, it'd be the equivalent. So you don't, you don't want to do that. Uh, but Parisians, man, they just, they make it tough on tourists. They're, they're kind of, not all of them, but, but a, a lot of them were just annoyed we were there. You know, the Americans always clogging up traffic and stuff, going to all the museums. And so we're, we're wrapped around the, the, this museum, like 10, you know, 100 people, 200 people. We're there for like two and a half hours waiting in line in this long line. It's 120 degrees in the shade. It's super hot. And, and we're there because, and I, this is my third day here, we know it's because the systems, the infrastructure to support tourism is just not great. Okay, it's just hard. They make it hard on tourists. So I got a bad attitude the whole time. I'm just frustrated that we have to wait in line for two and a half hours in the hot sun. We get into the museum and we turn the corner. We walk right into the door. We finally get to a place where we can walk in the door and there's a security guy there next to a sign right in the door. And the sign says, if you have this pink pass, skip the line. You don't have to wait in line. And he is loving his job, just watching all of us 
walk up and go, oh, I didn't have to wait in line for two and a half hours. I mean, he's loving it. He lo- he's just sitting there. He's like, yes, merci beaucoup. And just, and, and I, I, yeah, I'm not going to stand for that. I, if you know me, I'm just not going to stand for it. And so, uh, and Hannah knows me really well. She didn't have to like, I didn't even do anything. I didn't even say anything. And she's looked at me like, what are you going to do? What are you, that's all, that's, that was it. And I grabbed the sign and I start walking out the door and the little security guy's like, see if you play, Miss Jordan. I'm like, no, speak in English. So, because I don't, I don't know why I said that, but I just held out the sign and I said, pink pass, get in the building. Just go on in. And the whole city just ran into the facility. And I was a hero. And then as they were arresting me, I was the American hero. Actually, I, I got away. But, uh, but the reality is, is we waited for two and a half hours for nothing, nothing at all. Well, there's a book in the Bible, interestingly enough, it's called Ecclesiastes. And it's basically a guy who got to the end of line of life. He got to the end of the line of life. He had waited in line his whole life, done different stuff. He was a king of Israel. And he gets to the end of the line and he's trying to write a book and tell you what's a waste of time. What are the things in life that you can spend your life and time on and it's just not worth it? And in the, in the book, it can kind of, be, it kind of be depressing if you only read it from that, from that angle. But that's what he's doing is all these things that are meaningless, waste of time. But there's a few things he says, a few things that are worth it. And one of them is doing the hard work, not the easy, the hard work of building and investing time, energy, money, emotions into building great community and relationships. And this is the passage where he spotlights it. It's Ecclesiastes chapter four. And this is the passage where he puts a spotlight on community. And I think we got it. Do we got this one? Ecclesiastes, there it is. Two are better than one. So I know you think it'd be a lot easier to just do it by yourself. You're probably right. It's a lot harder to work together. But two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. Again, I'd rather do it on my own. It's harder to help get other people involved, but it's better is what he's saying. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. We talked about this last week. Pastor Brandon talked about it here. That if you fail, it's, it's good to have people pull you up. The problem is we don't, want, we don't want people to even know that we fail. We don't want to give people access to our failures. Solomon says, as hard as it is, as much as you don't want to do it, it's better to give people access in your life to the places you're weak in that you fail at, and they can help you up. It's better that way. And then this, it says, pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. This is the one where we're going to be today. And it's just the first part of this next passage here. If two lie down together, they're kept warm. But how can someone keep warm alone? That little metaphor is talking about when the weather changes. In life... Sometimes it gets cold outside. What's he talking about? He's talking about suffering, grief, hardship, not self-inflicted stuff. It's just the weather. Something happened and you're in, you're in a hard time. You're in some suffering. You ought to have people who can be close enough to you, can be around you to bring you some comfort. Not change the weather because you're going to suffer either way, but to at least can keep you warm in the middle of it. You know, I think, I think Christianity may be the only religion on the planet that uh, acknowledges this reality, that whether you're morally good or morally bad, either way you go in life, there's going to be suffering. I mean, let's be honest, people that we know that are morally bad, we think, oh, it must be great for them. You know, selfish people that are selfish, they don't got a lot of friends. 
Uh, people that are like indulging, overly indulging on substances usually get addicted. You ever see anybody addicted to something? It's miserable. They would tell you, I wish I wouldn't have had my first sip, right? That they would, I mean, that's brutal. This is suffering, okay? Morally bad life brings pain. Morally good, being morally good, that's hard too. Living, you know, generously and sacrificially loving. I mean, loving your neighbors yourself. Have you met, have you met your neighbor? right? And you got to love them like you love yourself. That's hard to do. There's suffering over here. This is hard and that's hard. They're both hard. Pick which hard you want. Christianity is, I think, one of the only religions, because most religions, they say, hey, listen, you appease the gods. You do all the good stuff the gods say to do. Your life's going to go better. Come be, come be a part of our religion, because if you follow our gods and you make our gods happy and you obey all our gods' rules, your life's going to be better. Christianity, we don't waste time with that. Jesus says, look, you follow me, it's going to be hard. There's going to be some suffering involved. There's going to be a cross involved in your life. You're going to be picking up a cross, he says, metaphorically. And there's going to be some dying to self that's going to be going on. Jesus says, if I suffered, I'm a, if I'm your master and I suffered, imagine my follower. My followers are going to suffer. He says, in this life, you'll experience hardship. He's telling you right out, it's going to be hard on this side. It's going to be hard on that side. Pick which one you want. Jesus is saying, the one on this side is better. Following me is better. It's not easier. Not easier better is what he says and i think suffering in america it's not like it's harder than other places in the world but it's it's different and even it's it's is it compounded or i would say complicated by two things number one we expect to be happy here in america most of the world doesn't live that way they don't expect it you know in america we got our rights like you know life liberty and i have the right to pursue happiness and if i'm not happy something somebody messed up i should sue you know Somebody messed up, if I'm not, I have a right to be happy. Most of the world, they don't live that way. They, they expect to suffer all the time. They get up and they're like, oh, you know, lost someone. This, it happens. Oh, they expect it. Here in America, we not only have the pain of suffering, we have the shock of even having to suffer in the first place. That's hard. That is, that is a punch to the gut. You not only are going through something hard, you are like shocked by it too. And, you know, here in America too, again, it's our culture. And even, even us... American Christians get, get into this because it's, it's culture. You, you're, it's your, you're a fish. You don't know you're wet. It's just what happens. You get to thinking, and this is unique to America. Not every part of the world lives this way. But in America, we're very what's called material. We're very, um, our culture is very phys- physical. We focus on physical. Most of the world is spiritual. Most of the world believes in spirituality, you know, Eastern religion, it's all spirituality. In fact, I'll even say most of human history was very spiritual. And they just assume that this life is short. What you really want to be focused on is the afterlife. The afterlife is where you want to be. You know, they, they recognize that we're going to be dead a lot longer than we're going to be alive. So whatever's over there, we better care more about that, put more stock in that. But in America here, we don't have that. We're very material. It's very like, this is it. All there is is this life. This is it. So if I haven't forbid, I got to suffer for any minute of it. It's so short and it's all I have. This is it. And most of the world doesn't believe that. They're like, this is, this is not, this is the appetizer. The main thing is the afterlife. And that's, I mean, that's what scripture teaches. And that's also very much how most of the world lives. But in America, we bought into this idea that the life is it. So is our suffering here, man, it's just compounded. It's, hard. it's h- harder in some ways, in those ways. So you ought to have someone who can go through it with you. So we're going to look at some really good friends today. 
And whose friends are they? They're uh, a guy named John in the Bible. He was Jesus's biological cousin, but he was also one of the early adopters to this whole thing that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is God. He was one of the first people telling everybody that Jesus is the guy. Here's a couple passages that prove it. This is John chapter one. And John here is talking about Jesus. He says, look, the lamb of God who takes away, he saw Jesus coming, takes away the sin of the world. He's the one I was talking about when I said a man is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. There's another passage where he talks about it too. Next passage, John testified, I saw the Holy Spirit descending like a dove from heaven, resting upon him, Jesus. I didn't know he was the one, but when God sent me to baptize with water, John the Baptist here, he told me this, the one whom you see the Spirit descend on and rest is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Well, I saw this happen to Jesus. So I testify, he's the, he's the chosen one of God. He's the Messiah. He's God's son. He's telling everybody this. Fast forward a couple months. He gets into some trouble. He starts calling out uh, Herod Antipas, Antipas, who's the governor that Rome appointed over Jerusalem. He starts telling everybody, telling Herod, you know, you publicly, you can't have an affair. He's having an affair on his wife. He's living an adulterous affair. And in those days, you know, you can't do that with the leader. And especially if it's public. You know, he's posting all the stuff on Twitter about it. And so uh, he, got, he got put in prison. And, it, and third world prison's pretty bad. If you, I, I guess there's a show on like third world prisons and the squalor that people have to live in when they're in a prison in the third world. Imagine that only 2,000 years ago. It's suffering. It's brutal. Brutal suffering John's in. And this is his friends. This is the story of John's friends. It's the story of John, but it's also the story of John's friends. Luke chapter seven. Here's his friends keeping him warm. So John called for two of his disciples, these two friends. And he sent them to the Lord to ask Jesus a question. Now, I just remind you, before we read the question that the disciples are going to be asking Jesus, this is John the Baptist. This is Jesus' biological cousin. Cousins in those days grew up, they were like siblings, they grew up with each other. This is John, the one who told everybody that Jesus is the Messiah. This is John who saw Jesus and the this dove thing, you know, and the, and the whole Holy Spirit resting on, he saw it with his own eyes. And because he saw it, he's testifying, telling everybody, Jesus is the guy. Listen, I don't know if you ever doubted your faith before. And you probably thought, if I could just see Jesus, like if I was just there physically, I, I would have believed. I would have, I would have certainly believed. I would have never doubted. But it's harder because I've never been, I never, I didn't see him physically. John the Baptist was there physically, saw it all happen. And this is the question that he's going to send his two disciples to ask Jesus. You ready for this? This is the question. Are you the Messiah we've been expecting? Or should we move on? Now, I'm just trying to picture those two disciples in that moment. They're like, John... Um, you're the one who told everybody that he's the guy. You're the one that told everybody he's the guy. What do you mean? What kind of question is that? Listen to what John's asking. This is an existential crisis. You ever have one of these in your life? An existential crisis is where you question your existence. You question everything you, you believe in. You ever have somebody, you ever, you ever have somebody, something in your life, so think of something you really believe in, a deep conviction, 
Like maybe it's like how to raise kids. You tell everybody, this is how you should raise your kids. And you're raising your kids that way. And you thought, this is how I'm supposed to do it. I'm raising them this way. And they're going to turn out perfect. They're going to turn out good. And then they get older and they're normal. <laughs> and they don't. And they go like this in college or whatever. And everybody sees it and everybody knows it. And you are watching it as mom or dad. And you're going, I did. I thought, I, I just, this was it. And it didn't happen. And you're just questioning every, you're questioning. I mean, I gotta, I'm going to be honest with you. If you know what I'm talking about, like when you put your life on something to the point where you tell everybody about it, you believe in it. And then something happens and you question it all, like entirely. That, there's a special kind of suffering there, isn't there? I mean, the pain is bad, but the pain of not knowing which way is up or down anymore, not knowing what the heck you believe, that is, that's a lonely, lonely place. That's John. And right as John's questioning this, here's what's going on outside the prison walls in, in Jesus' ministry, right? He's got crowds. He's got all kinds of stuff going on. This is actually what's happening. Just to skip ahead a little bit, this is what's going on. At that very time, Jesus was curing. He cured many people, their diseases, illnesses, evil spirits, and restored sight to the many who were blind. So he's doing all this stuff, right? And the disciples know it. They're like, John, we'll, at, we'll ask the question. But you realize we're going to have to probably interrupt Jesus in the middle of a miracle to ask him that question? Think of the guts. I mean, this is friendship. This is what we're talking about. Think of what's at stake for these guys. They're going to take the question of John the Baptist, like the founding member of this whole thing, and publicly with the crowd and all this stuff going, they're going to take it to Jesus and ask him. That's guts. That's good that's some, that's some good friends. I don't know if I got friends like that. But this is what they do. So John's two disciples, they found Jesus and said to him, <clears throat> Jesus, now just imagine the scene, okay? They got to like interrupt, right? Jesus is doing like, it's like Oprah, like you're getting healed, you're getting healed, you're, everybody's getting healed. There's a crowd of everybody's getting healed. And then, and all of a sudden the disciples are there and they're like, hey, whoa, 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 Jesus, wait, 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 before you raise that dead guy. He's not going anywhere. He'll be fine. He's just, he'll be fine. Okay. Quick question. Got a question for you. Um, it's, from your, it's from your cousin, John. Remember John? Yeah. Yeah, John, the one who's in prison. Yes. Yeah, no, he's good. He's good. Um, yeah, John, the one that told everybody here to follow you. Yeah. Yeah, he has a question. Just a little, little question. And this is it. He just wants to know, are you... <clears throat> I don't know how to say this. <laughs> are you the Messiah? Or should we be expecting someone else? I just, I'm picturing the blind guy who just got healed right there in that moment. I'm picturing what he's doing with that. You know, he's like, he's like yeah, I can see. Wait, wait, what did you say? I think you messed up my hearing <laughs> when you did something with my eyes because that doesn't make any sense to me. This is crazy. Now, now I, know, I don't know what you've been taught about God in church, but maybe you felt like you're a second-class person or Christian because you've had doubts and questions and you're not sure if God can handle them. Can I just tell you something? Um, God isn't insecure. God's not petty, 
You know, he doesn't need to defend his honor. His, his honor is fine. He knows who he is. He can handle it. He can handle it. Because look at Jesus' response. It wasn't indignant offense. He wasn't like, I can't believe. Who said that? John? What an idiot. I'm offended. You know, he wasn't offended. Then Jesus, he, he's not insecure. This is his response. This is Jesus' remedy to people struggling with doubt. Ready for this? This is it. Go back to John. Tell him what you have seen, what you've seen, and what you've heard. The blind see. The lame walk. The lepers are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised to life. And the good news is being preached to the poor. Here's the, here's the anecdote. Here's the remedy. Jesus is saying to his disciples, he's saying, you need to go back and you tell John the truth. But here's, it's more than that, though. We, let's look at the whole picture. What happened here? John's good friends were good enough to bring John's doubts, fears, frustrations, grief right up to the feet of Jesus. That's step one. Do you have friends? Do you have friends? Do you have community that will bring your, your grief, your pain, your suffering? Do you have friends that will bring it to Jesus? Or are they bring, you can, look, you can take it a lot of places. You can take it to substance abuse. You could take it to other places. You could take it to, you know, you're trying to escape with all kinds of entertainment, vacations, leisure, whatever, work. You can take it to work. You can take it wherever you want. Do you have people in your life? This is why you got to, I'm telling you, it's, just, it's not just about sign up for a, an event. You don't need another event in your life. It's not just another program. It's sign up with, to be around people who will take your life stuff to Jesus. So the best way I can describe this is this. If you're going, how do I help people who are suffering around me? Well, first you got to bring tears. And, and, I, and I know we didn't get the tears thing. If you could throw that slide up. Uh, I, know, I know there's not literal tears in this passage, but, but you have to empathize with people's grief, with their doubts, with their struggles. you got to deal honestly with them. You can validate their pain and their emotion without agreeing with what they're concluding about it. Can I just say that again? You can validate their pain, their grief. You can take it to God. You can validate the suffering they're going through without having to validate the conclusions they're drawing about it. And this is what I would put. Do you have community that takes your questions, your doubts? Some of you, to be honest with you, you give up on church or you're not really, a, you're, you're checking it out again for the first time in a long time because maybe the last time you experienced Christians was they made it really unsafe for you to ask hard questions, to, ask, to have doubts. Look at what the good friends did in this one. They didn't just make it safe for John to have doubts. They took his doubts to the throne room of heaven. That's, that's the church. That's what the church should do. They should take your struggles. Because let me tell you something. If they're in here, God already knows you got them. So why not just talk about them with other people who can take them to Jesus? You got to bring people's tears to the Lord. You also have to bring truth. You can't do one or the other. You also have to bring truth. And let's, let me put that slide up. You got to bring truth to him. This is exactly what Jesus says. He says, you need to go back and tell John the truth. Do you have people in your life that can help you see the truth? Because here's what pain is. It's a prison. You know, John the Baptist, he's not just in literal prison. 
he's in also a spiritual prison. When you're suffering, man, and someone's telling you God's good, you can't see it. When you're going through loss or tragedy and someone's telling you that God has power to use that or to somehow find a way to bring good out of it, you can't see that. You're in prison and you need to give access to other people to be your eyesight, to see the truth that Jesus is still loving. He is still good. He's still present with you in it. He's still able to use it. He's still healing. He's still forgiving, even though you don't feel forgiven. You're still saved, even though you don't feel saved. You can't see it. Do you have other people who can be your set of eyes in your life? Because when you suffer, when you go through pain, what's going to bring warmth, what's going to bring comfort is if people can bring your tears to God and bring truth into your life that can do both. And only doing one or the other ain't comfort at all. We've all had that friend who just brings truth and they don't have any tears with them. We've all had that friend who's able to grieve with us, but they're not telling the same. They're not, they're just, they're getting in the pit with us, but it's, it's dark. <laughs> there's no hope. But the reality is, is truth, there's hope. You know, this is, it's a both and. It's not one or the other. Tears and truth. But you know what, ultimately, when people go through suffering, one of the things they feel like they can't see is God anymore. So you know what they'll do? They'll cut God out, right? We all know somebody, maybe it's us, maybe we've been there, maybe you're there right now, where you're like, I can't believe in a God. Why not? Well, after what I've been through, what I've seen, what I've lost, there probably is no God. I used to believe in a God, but then I went through some suffering and I gave up on God. He's not real. I can't believe in a God that would allow that. I'm going to be honest with you right now. When you delete God from suffering, when you, when you delete God from your equation of life because you're going through suffering, I'm going to be honest with you, it doesn't make your suffering better. It doesn't make it easier to suffer. It, it makes it worse. Because now... There's no hope. Now there's no, there is no hope. I mean, I mean, when you believe in a God who is somehow over and above it, he's not just up there playing tennis and reacting to evil. He's actually, that's more scary to me. He can actually has, can has a say in it. He can use it somehow. He can figure out a way to bring good out of it. And let me tell you something. Most of our suffering in life is because of the injustice, right, of somebody else. Somebody else did something. Some, our, our spouse, our kids, our family, our boss, our, our company, whatever. It's some injustice. What basis... Can you even say there even is justice if you don't believe in a God? I mean, on what, on what moral grounds? Yours? So what did you get to decide that what's right and actually what's morally wrong? There is no justice anymore if you cut God out of the equation of, of suffering and evil in the world. There's no justice. It's just we're just a bunch of animals. Just survive. There's no, no right or wrong. We're just surviving. Survival of the fittest. doesn't even matter. Just people do stuff to you. Now, if you cut God out of the equation, it gets... Worse, not better, dealing with suffering. But here's what's also true. Christianity, the only religion in the world, only one, that offers the comfort of a God who got near enough to keep you warm with himself. 
the only religion in the world where the, where the creator, the being, God, allowed himself to get close enough to you. He put skin on. He became Jesus. He put skin on. He was born like a normal human. You know, went through teenage years like a normal teenager. Did all the normal stuff that we have to go through. And he even allowed himself. He didn't have to. He like got close enough to you and I. He allowed himself to suffer. Go through pain. And even this, he even allowed himself. This is, I don't know how this works. He allowed himself to experience what probably would be all of our greatest fears, right? Dying. He died. And for a second, if you're going, well, it was probably wasn't a full, real death. Can I tell you something? How can God redeem and restore through death without experiencing the fullness of it? He can't. He had to go through all of it. He died, died. He was fully human. Fully. How? It's the only faith in the world, the only religion where God got near enough to us to go through everything we go through to suffer and die, and worse than that, be killed, murdered, the unjust death of murder on a cross. And this is where we read about it in Mark chapter 15. This is how close our God got. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by added insult to to it at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross, save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests, teachers of the law, mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross that we might see and believe. Think about this. John doesn't believe Jesus is the Messiah because John's suffering. The world doesn't believe Jesus is the Messiah How could he possibly be God? Again, every other religion in the world says God doesn't submit himself to suffer. Because they get it. How could he be God? Because he's suffering. Do you see that? John doubts him because John's suffering. The world doubts Jesus is God because Jesus suffered. Those crucified with him also heaped insults in him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't know if you've ever gotten to that place in your life, that place where you, you did everything right, obeyed all the rules, you went to church, you took your kids to church, you raised them in the church, you told that's what you're supposed to do, right? You did everything right. You, your marriage, you, were, you married what you thought was a Christian. You thought that this is how it's supposed to be. You, did, you, you did, took your job because you thought that's what God wanted you to do. So you went into that career. You did everything right. You obeyed all the rules as best you could. You did everything and you still are suffering. You still are on a cross somewhere. There's something going on. You're bleeding out on the cross going, I did everything. I did everything you told me to do. And how did I get here? And then you're at the bottom of it. Now you're at the bottom and you're crying out. You're saying, my God, you're you're still my God, but why have you let me go? Why have you forsaken me? You're crying out and you're at the bottom and you're like, this is it, God. This is it. If you want to come in and save, this is the moment. Can Can I tell you what didn't happen after Jesus yelled that? Okay, here's what didn't happen. God the Father didn't hear it and go, okay, this is the moment. You're at the bottom. Okay, I'm going to come down. I'm going to come down. I'm going to pull you off the cross. I'm going to take the nails out. I'm going to push back the insults. I'm going I'm to heal you. I'm going to fix you. No, it didn't get better. Jesus got to the bottom. He cried out, got to the end of himself, and it didn't get better. 
No, no, the next thing that happened is he died. It got worse. And everybody's sitting there watching going, boy, that guy, he definitely had no God. I mean, he got to the end of himself. He cried out and then he died. Nothing. You ever get there where you did everything right, you tried to do everything right, you get to the end, you cry out, you get to the bottom of your pit and you cry out and they're not healed. The cancer didn't go away. The job didn't come back. The marriage didn't get restored. The kids didn't turn away from what they were doing and come back home. It, did, it didn't happen. It got, it got worse. It didn't get better. You ever get there? I'm going to be honest with you. In that moment, I don't know how this works. In that moment, we serve a God who can look you in the eye and say, I know exactly what that feels like. I know exactly how that feels. I've been there. I prayed that, you know, you got that little prayer in your heart that you wanna, you're not sure if I'm allowed to say in church. You know, God, why you, why you abandoned me? Why'd you leave me? You feel you can't say that in church? Can I tell you something? Jesus said it. He said it out loud in front of a bunch of people. Jesus takes that doubt. He allows you to talk about it because he's talked it. He, he didn't have it, but he yelled it. He felt it. He felt abandoned, right? And here's the reality is he was. The father had to look away. Why? Well, here's the reality. You may not know why you suffer. You may not get to find out your why. You may never know your why. You may die and never know why it all happened. But can I tell you something? We know why Jesus' why is. We know why when he yelled out, why have you forsaken me? We know why he was. You know why? His why? We do know. The Bible tells us it's you. It's you. It's you. It's me. That's his why. For God so loved the world. He so loved you. He gave up his son. That's his why. So that we never have to know being alone in suffering. Being alone in any kind of suffering. Because Jesus was forsaken, so we don't have to be. Why don't you stand as you're able? I'm going to pray here in a moment. We're going to sing a song to close this out. And the song is about vision. It's about being able to see clearly. And this song is about letting Jesus be your vision. And the reason this is so important is because in life, it gets blurry. It gets real blurry, real fast. I believe everybody in this room is fighting some kind of battle. There's something going on that's keeping the vision. You can't see it. You can't see the hope. You can't see God's presence with you in it. You can't see that there's a future that he's gonna redeem this thing. There's no way. You can't see it. You need Jesus to be your vision for you. You need to be able to see through his goggles. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray that we can not only just sing the song. I'm not asking we just sing. I'm asking it to happen here. That all of a sudden we put on a new set of goggles when you walk out that door. And Monday through Saturday, you're looking at the world through a set of different lenses. You're seeing Jesus breaking you out of that prison suffering, whatever it is. Let me pray. Jesus, our vision gets blurry. And you know what that's like to suffer. You know what it's like to feel pain, to cry out, to feel forsaken. You were. 
So Lord, I thank you that you got close enough to our existence, to our life, to go through anything we're going through and be able to look at us in the eye and say, I get it. Because Lord, you know, we don't need someone to explain it all to us, try and tell us how it all works out. We don't need someone to help us understand. We need someone who just understands. And that's you. You get it. You can look us in the eye and say, I understand. Lord, would you do that right now in the hearts of everybody in this room? Would they see your face in their suffering and see it as somebody who knows what it's like and is with them in it? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's worship.